Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Max Q. I'm your host, Dean, here, and today we have a very special episode. Uh, a few weeks ago, we got to sit down with Devin Pappendrew from Stoke Space. Uh, we had a great interview. Uh, so we also we also have a article version of the interview to kind of help you guys understand like some of the topics that we talk about. Have some visual references in there. Uh, so make sure to go check out that in the description below. Uh, so without further ado, here is Devin Papandrew. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, Papandrew, pretty close. Papandrew, okay. all kinds of things. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Let's 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 kind of get started here. Uh, so, what exactly what exactly does your job entail? Um, just kind of like what what do you what do you do at Stoke? So I'm I do business development at Stoke. My job is to work with all sorts of different satellite customers who might be commercial, might be government, uh, who need to get payloads deployed to precise locations in space. Uh, my job is to understand their needs, make sure that what we're working on at Stoke is uh, best suited to serve those needs. Uh, and then, you know, at least in the near term, quite simply, is fill our manifest of launches Mm-hmm. with uh customers who need that access to space all right so it sounds like a really interesting job there it's uh it's very dynamic that's for sure yeah uh, sounds like you get to work with a lot of people on a uh, pretty frequent basis absolutely i mean uh here at stoke i think we're about 90 something employees and uh they're all smarter than me so i get to work internally <laughs> with a lot of very very talented engineers and and uh, and folks here at Stoke. And then externally, I get to talk to lots of people who are either, um, you know, at mature companies that are worried about long-term planning for their large constellations of satellites uh, or startups with really, really cool ideas um, who are just getting started with a few demo sets and sort of everything in between. So it's really fun to get such a nice cross-section or picture of all the exciting things going on in space today, as well as in the near future. Sounds, sounds really interesting. So what, exa- what exactly does Stoke do? So Stoke, we are radically improving access to and from space. Uh, as I mentioned, what that starts with is a fully and rapidly reusable rocket. Uh, it's a two-stage rocket. Stage one is akin to the Falcon 9. So it does vertical takeoff, vertical landing, um, and is reusable. And then our secret soft is our upper stage, uh, which we can talk more about, but goes to orbit, deploys payloads, um, and then returns to Earth, uh, returns to the launch site, launch site ready to be flown again. Um, we think that really the, the future paradigm, someone is going to figure out how to go to and from space and operate like a 737, where it's you're always in flight, right? Herb Keller, who uh, was the founder of Southwest Airlines, I think famously quipped, or at least apocryphally quipped, um, airplanes on the ground don't make money. Uh, and our thesis yeah. is the same. Rockets on the ground don't make money. So you yeah. have to figure out how to fly something fully reusable and fly it extremely frequently, extremely high cadence. And someone's going to do that. And I think we've started with knowing that that's the end game. Um, if you want to be successful, you have to think about that end game before anything else. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what we're chasing after very aggressively. Yeah. And I'm... I- your your rocket your rocket seems like seems really interesting. Uh, could you give us like a short rundown of how your rocket works? Yeah, um, so I'll start with stage two. 
Uh, and that's where we're starting as a company where we have started uh, because that's the, that's the last domino to fall. Uh, SpaceX has done pretty amazing things uh, demonstrating partial reusability or reusability of their, the first stage of their vehicle. Um, but we said, hey, rocket stages are highly coupled uh, machines. And if we wanna make a fully reusable vehicle, we have to figure out upper stage reuse. Um, and once we figure that out, we need to be able to flow down those requirements to our stage one. So uh, stage two is pretty unique. Um, you know, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the basics of, of getting to orbit, right? But you gotta give your payload a lot of Delta V. Um, stage one typically doesn't make it to orbit. Uh, it, it returns to the earth, either it, it crashes in the ocean as an expendable or like Falcon 9, it, it lands propulsively. Stage two, a lot of the work uh, in orbit and typically is expended. Um, and so what our stage two does is once it's deployed payloads, it's actually designed to re-enter like a capsule. So like Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, or even like Dragon more recently, uh, it comes in base first. Um, and to do that, you need a heat shield to survive hypersonic re-entry. Uh, traditional approaches to heat shields on reusable orbital vehicles uh, use ceramic tiles, which are fragile and they're brittle. And for example, as we saw catastrophically on shuttle, they have, they have you know, catastrophic uh, failure modes. And so he said, you know, if you wanna be able to fly and operate like a 737, you have to be thinking really hard about all the things you're not gonna do in between each flight because you're flying very, very frequently. Mm -hmm. Now on shuttle, because of those catastrophic failure modes, uh, they did expensive and time intensive inspections between each flight. So they would literally visually inspect and with an x-ray machine inspect every single one of those 30,000 ceramic tiles for the tiniest flaw. Uh, because if there was that flaw, hot gas would get in and you'd have a very bad day. Um, yeah. And there was no way to get around that because how are you certain that you're going to be able to be safely fly on flight two, flight three, mm -hmm. flight 10, flight 100? Um, so we wanted to take a different approach. Uh, we wanted a, a robust approach to reentry heat shielding that um, is robust. It has passive failure modes, so it can operate in a degraded state uh, without any risk of uh, you know, having a catastrophic failure. Um, it needs to be resilient to damage, so bird strikes, ice strikes, a technician dropping a wrench on it in the, in the shop, which are all things that happen on space hardware in real life. Uh, and Stoke was founded by some engine guys who'd worked on rocket engines for you know, combined decades. And rocket engines are actively cooled and they meet all those requirements. They can, they can fire with flaws in the engine liner. Uh, they can deal with small cracks or flaws uh, and they are actively cooled. So rocket engines get very, very hot. You have to get rid of that heat. And traditionally what we do is uh, flow very cold, typically propellant uh, through channels in the rocket engine nozzle and pull all that heat away and sometimes put it to use. And so we said, why not smear that across the base of the vehicle? And that's what our upper stage does. Uh, we have an actively cooled base heat shield, uh, which meets all those requirements for being robust and resilient to damage and needing almost no refurbishment between flights. And we think that's sort of the, the last nut to be cracked, like the last obstacle to be overcome to unlocking full reusability of a launch vehicle. Uh, and then unlocking that that high cadence paradigm. That was that was a lot. I apologize. I, I just kind of ran. No, off, that's good. That's no, good. no, that's, that's what that's we're going great. for. That's, that's what we're looking that, for. Yeah, and I I found I found that heat shield just uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just very uh, uh, I, I 
can't think of the word right now, but it's just I mean, the one that it's very, inter- very interesting design there. Um, could you tell us, could you, uh, ex- could you guys explain how you landed on the concept of the rocket and some of the, some of the steps the design took and kind of how it changed before settling on the current concept and what are some of the other concepts you guys looked into? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we looked at some of the other approaches, right? Uh, you could use the, um, you know, passive approaches to heat shielding, but uh, for, the, for the reasons mentioned, um, we had to throw those out. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, with the way Starship intends to reenter, which we call it the swan dive or the belly flop maneuver, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is really complicated uh, for a number of reasons. And especially if you wanna bring down mass payload, it, it complicates that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted something that was basically super robust and maybe a bit more simple. And what that meant is you have to bury your heat shield in your engine because when a second stage goes to orbit, expends a lot of its propellant, it's relatively lightweight, except the center of mass is biased towards very close to the engine, which is typically big and heavy. Mm-hmm. And so naturally that's the engine is like the side of the vehicle that wants to fly forward I guess in that reference frame through the atmosphere. Uh, and so how do you put a heat shield and engine together combined, integrated? You could look at something that closes around it, but that uh, introduces a lot of complexity. And it really, those, those sort of trades landed where we are today, which is an integrated engine heat shield. They are sort of one and the same. Uh, and that same engine integrated heat shield is a very, very high efficiency uh, effective engine on asset and for in-space maneuvering. Uh, and then of course it is that um, uh, very efficient and robust heat shield on descent and re-entry. Uh, and then we use that same engine for uh, a precision powered landing. Um, there's been a lot since um, our co-founders, Andy Lapson and Tom Feldman started the company that uh, early on there was all those trades weren't work and doing a bunch of sort of bottoms up and top down analysis of what makes sense. Um, so I would say, you know, there's been some minor design changes, how the heat shield is shaped, you know, how many thrusters we have, things like that uh, have been optimized based on uh, a lot of inputs. But I would say at the high level, we knew pretty early on, uh, we wanted it to be uh, an actively cooled heat shield. And really it's driven by the, the requirement for uh, very, very high cadence operations and, and knowing that the commercial space market is, is demanding and continues to demand way more launch than the launch market can supply. Um, not just in terms of, I need a lot of mass going somewhere, but a lot of discrete pieces of mass. Satellites need to fill out a constellation and be precisely located all over um, various orbital destinations requires a lot of launch. Uh, and so it really just it fell out of that analysis. How can we fly very, very frequently and drastically increase that availability of access to space. Yeah. Um, so could, could you guys go into a little bit uh, about how your, how your testing is going? I know you've recently been starting off doing your testing. Is there any info that you can provide us on that? Yeah, so uh, we have been extensively testing our that integrated engine and base heat shield. Um, you know, I think we initially turned the whole engine on 
something like August or September of 2022. So we're we're approaching a, a year of pretty high cadence test operations for that engine. Uh, we had been testing the individual thrusters for quite some time before that, but we, you know, a, a turbo pump fed engine with our in-house designed and built turbo machinery. Uh, we've been testing that thing. You know, we'll go through stretches where we'll do like six, 10, I think sometimes 16 tests per day and do the same thing over again the next day. And that, that hasn't been sustained every day. Like sometimes it just doesn't make sense to do that because we're not getting the associated learning, but we've been able to get a lot of testing, not just of being able to turn it off and or turn it on and turn it back off again routinely and reliably, which is, which is important, which is not a given, uh, but also yeah. sort of um, looking at all the different edge cases. So that engine is basically the entire aft end of our upper stage vehicle. Um, so it's an engine. It's also avionics and, and avionics hardware and GNC code that's in the loop. That's the flight-like, or it is the flight uh, hardware and software. Uh, it's our turbo machinery to power that engine. And what we've been able to do is create a feedback loop where we'll plug in, you know, assume a 30 mile an hour crosswind and we can make those, those, those um, make sure the engine responds appropriately and then create this feedback loop where the engine will maybe uh, do some uh, thrust vectoring, some differential throttle thrust vectoring. I'll talk more about that. Uh, and then this physics model anticipates this is how it would respond in a 30 mile hour crosswind. Um, and then it, it does some more control inputs. So we've created these feedback loops where we can basically test the engine in every single uh, edge case that our Monte Carlo analysis has spit out as a, as a possible outcome. And long-winded way of saying, we've done everything that you can reasonably do to test this engine without flying it. And so the next step is, well, let's fly it. And we will fly that one day going to orbit, uh, but we're also in the more near term looking at flying that uh, on a suborbital hop of that reasonable upper stage. So that's a vertical takeoff, vertical landing, flight um, that we'll do at our, our test facility in Moses Lake, Washington. Uh, and yeah, we've, uh, we've done a ton towards it. I'll talk more about that. We've already got a lot of learning out of it. Um, and we're, we're progressing along towards that hop flight uh, later this year. Yeah, sounds, so you, sounds, you mentioned sounds, that, uh, sorry, apologies, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, this sounds, sounds very interesting. Uh, really looking forward to that hop test. Yeah, speaking of uh, said hop test on that second stage, you mentioned the uh, thruster systems are uh, pretty unique in the way they're designed. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, are there any big challenges or ideas that kind of led to where it is now? Yeah, I would say um, it is definitely a unique design. Uh, and what we looked at, I think, to your earlier question about where did the design come from is, well, we want to bury a heat shield in an engine. What does that look like? Uh, and we came up with this architecture that has a lot of, in our case, 30 thrusters around a central heat shield. Um, and that heat shield acts as uh, a little bit of an aerospike, like a very truncated aerospike. So you get some benefit um, from aerospike effects in, in vacuum. And if you wanted to just build an aerospike, uh, what it means is if you want to maintain the same area ratio, you need to get tiny, tiny razor thin, uh, an orifice or annulus all the way around that large um, central heat shield or plug, 
which are very, very difficult to manufacture. So that's how we ended up with the discrete 30 thrusters is these individual thrusters, which the combustion chamber, I like to, it's about the size of a Coors light can, um, are mm. pretty easy to manufacture, relatively speaking. Uh, and you have all these discrete thrusters around, which can be individually tested, uh, acceptance tested, can be individually maintained and replaced if necessary. Uh, and you get the same effective area ratio uh, and effective performance out of the engine. Uh, what complexity it drives then is if you want to be able to uh, steer as well as throttle uh, the vehicle, which is important if we're gonna fly this thing precisely. Uh, throttling, the requirements for throttling are, are pretty strict. Um, and then if you wanna steer, traditional approaches have one big bell nozzle that is gimbaled. Uh, and to gimbal this giant aerospike or to gimbal individual thrusters would add a lot of mass and complexity. Uh, so what we've done, an alternative approach, we call it DTTVC, which is differential throttle thrust vector control. And so by simply uh, increasing the thrust on maybe some of the thrusters and decreasing the thrust on other thrusters, uh, you create a moment, um, a pitch or yaw moment to steer the vehicle. And so we've had to be able to show that we can routinely and reliably deep throttle each of those thrusters individually, as well as the engine as a whole. Uh, and we have, that's been a lot of the trim tests we've been doing over the last few months is proving out that capability reliably and in those weird edge cases that I mentioned. Uh, and I would say, I don't know if it's been a, a big challenge, but it's definitely been a big portion of the work that we knowingly bit off when we, uh, chose to go forward with this this engine architecture is is that ability and, and now that we've really tested it in every sort of possible scenario we're very confident that we'll be able to uh, demonstrate it uh, on the hop flight uh, in a few months sounds sounds very interesting I've when I when I first heard about it still so, several months ago now I think it was about a year ago now um, I was just kind of just kind of did a little bit of research into uh the company i was like wow this is like very interesting stuff I've, like i've never seen an aerospace company take like such a very iterative uh approach to uh to, to things like the the only other company that i've seen do something similar to this is like spacex but they're not doing it like to this level i guess well i think spacex has done amazing things um certainly with their star hopper campaign which was the like I guess precursor Pathfinder vehicle for for Starship, they definitely took an innovative approach where they were willing to move very quickly, willing to blow things up, um, and I think in generally in general, that can be a healthy approach in in the right uh, mindset with the right guardrails on. Right, sometimes it's important to be able to just move very quickly, move uh, iteratively, and if if something goes wrong, it's in a in a safe environment where it doesn't really matter. As you've seen with Starship Super Heavy, the, the orbital vehicle, they've taken a much more, um, I guess, slowed down and, and rigorous approach. Um, and so we, we try to do the same, right? There's some times where it is valuable to be able to iterate, to move fast and break things. There's some times where uh, that's not acceptable. I think the key is just knowing um, when those situations are or are not. Uh, it's definitely, you know, uh, I think, uh, the the origin of the quote is is escaping me but you know uh, one test is worth a thousand expert analyses um and we we take that to heart so like let's 
let's test things as quickly as we can, put hardware to test uh, rather than doing additional analysis that makes a nice PowerPoint or makes a nice uh, report, but doesn't lead to working hardware. Yeah. So can you, can you uh, just give us a little bit of information on your, how your first stage dev development is going? Uh, how is the full flow stage combustion engine coming along? And is there any new development developments on that front? Yeah, so we chose uh, full flow stage combustion. We think that is the, uh, the right engine cycle for long life uh, rapidly and many repeated uh, reuses of, of a first stage engine. We use liquefied natural gas as uh, first stage fuel. Um, I guess off the bat regarding sort of um, developments, I think we've shared photos of um, our oxidizer rich pre-burner and test. We shared those a few months ago. Uh, we continue to build and test hardware. So obviously the, the pre-burner, um, we've looked at, uh, you know, igniters as well. We've built and tested. Uh, we've done dev manufacturing or, or demonstrated, maybe the manufacturing demonstrator of, uh, of our combustion chamber for the main combustion chamber for the stage one engine. Um, and yeah, we're on track, uh, I, I could say in a few months, like late this year, early next year to do a, a full hot fire of that stage one engine. Um, as we go forward, we've, we've hired a lot of talent from, um, different places, whether it was way back folks who worked RS 25, the shuttle, uh, main engines, which were, mm. um, uh, fuel rich stage combustion. We've hired folks, uh, from SpaceX who have worked Raptor Raptor. Yeah. We've hired folks from blue who, um, have experience working, uh, BE4, uh, which is, uh, ox rich stage combustion. So we have a ton of, uh, talent, uh, that has done this before and we we continue to make pretty good progress so, sounds great uh so i i know i know i asked you kind of th this bef before i started recording but uh are there any plans to expand from just a launcher to orbit to maybe uh earth moon or multi-planetary uh transportation yeah i think that uh it, it first starts with with radically increasing access you know to and from space whether that's just getting cargo to orbit uh or getting cargo from orbit back down to earth but once you've made progress on solving that you can do so routinely and cost effectively uh then if you have you know an in-space mobility vehicle that incidentally our stage two is very well suited for uh you can start to do really cool things um so our stage two, uh, I think I mentioned 430 seconds of ISP out of our upper stage engine. Um, that's very high. It's the highest performance engine in, in all of new space. Um, that's, that's afforded by hydrogen and some of the unique architecture that we have. Uh, and once you start to get beyond LEO, so out into high energy orbits, um, out by the moon and cislunar space, uh, even, um, I guess, outside of Earth's sphere of influence and like a multi or interplanetary mission, even a few seconds of ISP specific impulse are uh, very, very powerful. So we think that's really unique. Um, there really aren't other launch vehicles among, you know, new space um, launch providers or even in this sort of size class that we are, medium lift size class that have that kind of ISP, which is really just think of it like fuel efficiency. You can go farther on a single tank. 
so I think we have some competitive advantage there if we can launch second stages to orbit uh, cheaply and cost effectively. We're also looking seriously and even more seriously now at um, you know what an in-space refueling architecture might look like. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's very public that Starship takes something like seven to fifteen refuels in LEO to send that lunar Starship to the moon. Uh, that's because liquefied natural gas, methane, that's their upper stage starship propellant fuel rather, uh, is lower ISP. Um, and, you know, with hydrogen, you can do a similar mission with a single refuel, which is a lot less costly, a lot less risky, uh, and a lot less slow, a lot faster. So I think we're really interested in broadly space mobility, um, as is unlocked by this this paradigm that we're designing for, which is full and rapid reuse of the launch vehicle. I will I will say there's kind of one last question that I wanted to ask, and that's just based off of the fact that you chose to use two different types of fuel in the two stages. Like the first stage uses liquefied natural gas, and the second stage uses liquid hydrogen. Um, yeah. Was there a reasoning behind choosing two different fuel sources? Well, hydrogen is essential for the upper stage. Um, all of the high performance uh, aspects of hydrogen are important and great and valuable, but the actual main reason for us is the cooling capabilities of liquid hydrogen. Uh, per unit mass, you get a lot more cooling. The, the specific heat capacity of liquid hydrogen uh, is, is a lot better compared to uh, you know LNG, RP1, water, liquid oxygen. And so that's been really, really important for unlocking this, this um, active cooling of, of our base heat shield. But if you wanted to use hydrogen on stage one, hydrogen, even when it's cryogenic and very cold, just does not get very dense. Uh, so it's difficult to pack enough hydrogen uh, into a reasonably sized stage one, uh, such that you're not taking huge hits on structure mass and, and, and all those things uh, to optimize your mass to orbit. So. Uh, that's where LNG, the addition of that that one carbon atom uh, to the molecule, is actually really, really effective at, at densifying uh, that fuel. Uh, and so you can just pack enough fuel in, and um, and and uh, it, it's it's a lot more efficient. So that's why you'll look at a lot of so like New Glenn is LNG stage one, hydrogen stage two, Vulcan Centaur is LNG stage one, uh, hydrogen stage two, and um, I do think that combo. Uh, is going to be very effective in the long run. Yeah. All right. I think um, that was all the questions uh, I had. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of any more either. Uh, well, thank you for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast for us. Um, we we really enjoyed talking with you, uh, and we hope to we hope to get you back on the podcast sometime in the future. It was awesome to chat with you guys and meet you guys, and would love to chat again soon. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming well, on. All right. All right. Well, thank you, guys. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you. You too. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Max Q. I want to thank Devin Papandrew for taking time out of his day to talk about all the cool things Stoke Space is doing with us. Um, I also want to thank Jennifer Thompson for getting this whole interview set up. Uh, I want to. I want to thank her for that. Um, so thank thank you for getting all this set up, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Um, would love to hear some more stuff about Stoke. Um, 
our staff is very interested in everything that uh, that you guys are doing. So thank you for taking time to come on our podcast and talk about all of that. Uh, and thank you to everyone who listened to this show. Make sure to go share it with all of your friends, family. Uh, make sure to share it on Twitter or X. Um, share it. Share, just share it with share it with the world. Um, this is a very awesome episode for us. A uh, huge, huge episode for for our staff. Um, I know we we really enjoyed talking with uh, Devin, and we want to we want to share this interview with everyone with every everyone in the world. It's kind of what we want to do. Um, so make sure you go share this. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, we'll see you in our next episode on Saturday. Bye.